electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. What tomorrow's CPI report must read for stocks to continue their early year rally. We've got the latest must-see predictions now from J.P. Morgan's closely followed trading desk. Our investment committee debating that as our stock summit continues. It means more stock and sector picks for you. Joining me for the hour today, Brenda Vingello, Jenny Harrington, Rob Seachin, and Joe Terranova. Let's take you to the wall. We're just past 12 noon in the east. Show you what we're doing here. Decent day going. Nasdaq's the outperformer again. Up better than 100 points. That's nearly 1%. There's the Dow, one quarter of 1%, 0.5 for the S&P, and 357 is the yield on the 10-year note. Jenny, all right, the big wait for the big report. What do we think? Okay, I think if we come in around 6.6%, that probably makes sense. We've seen we've seen each of the last reports decrease, right? It was 8.3, then it was 7.1 at the end of each of the last quarter. So let's say we come in around 6.6%. Um, I think that's what we're expecting. And I don't think I don't think that kind of reading triggers a spark that drives the market way up from here. And I think that's because earnings probably aren't going to be great. They may be flat, they may be down, they may grow a little. We already have a reasonably rich multiple. We're trading around 17 times. So what I think a 6.6% reading does for us is actually puts a floor under the market. And so if we come in with numbers that we expect, all that says is, hey, we're probably not going to revisit previous lows. You don't need to worry about going back to October. We're okay. Interesting uh, perspective because it mirrors in some ways, Joe, what, what J.P. Morgan, I mentioned, you know, they game this out every time before the report and they give you an idea of how much the market can go up or down based on what the actual read is. Remember, November was 7.1, okay? They say a print between 6.4% and 6.6%, which they deem has a 65% chance of happening, produces a decline in volatility across asset classes. S&P goes up one5 to 2%. Tech leads the way. By the way, tech has been doing pretty well lately. But that the rally is likely faded, given the move into the number already, right? Markets had a pretty decent move mm-hmm. at the beginning part of this year, right? So what's fresh in my memory is the December report mm-hmm. and the significant rally that we had intraday thereafter and then subsequent to that, the reversal. So if you're, if you're trading the futures market and you're focusing on volatility and that's what's important to you, okay, then tomorrow is a signature event. I think the best that you could hope for is that you maintain the positive momentum that has been developed so far year to date, and you're able to carry that into earnings, which begin on Friday. I think that's really the optimistic scenario that you could hope for. If there is an unfortunate inflation number that comes in far worse than feared, then I think you set yourself up on the table for a significant well, decline. They, but, they agree with you. They say, look out. Right? Right. But they say if you get, if you get above 6.6%, 
that, and they only think there's a 15% chance of that happening, that you get a 25 to 3% decline in stocks. Yeah, I, I think if there's a significantly worse than feared number, then the market is incredibly vulnerable to that. But beyond that, I don't know if there's going to be enough that's going to come out in tomorrow's report that's going to be able to identify for investors, okay, here's a paradigm shift. This is the report that you focus on. This is why you rush back into risk assets. I think it's nothing more than just maintaining what we've so far established in January. Rob, so again, you, you have you know expectations that it's going to be another good report. Mm-hmm. That's why the market's been moving up. The problem is the market's been moving up. Mm-hmm. You have year-to-date, Dow's up 2%, S&P 25 NASDAQ 35 Basically, you've had a week or so of trading thus far. Does that cap whatever good feeling there is on the back of a good number? I think in the short run, you know, if you have a really good number, you could have an explosive move up um, because of positioning. Positioning is still, you know, decidedly lopsided. So, um, you know, you get an environment where you get a better than expected number, you get, a, you get kind of a short-term blow-off. It's really where we get concerned is in the medium term. And in the medium term, uh, you're going to see a cap on these moves just based on valuation. When you start to get some of the really exuberant targets in the S&P, some of which have been talked about on this you show. You mean for the, for the yearly ones? Like for, for, the, the, for the yearly ones. Okay, the like the 4750s of, of, a, of your guy Tom Lee. He is my friend, but you would have to see some sort of multiple expansion, mm-hmm. right? Or you'd have to see some sort of excess earnings growth. And the way we manage money, it's just not an environment where we're willing to make that bet in the medium term. On either metric. On either metric. Multiple expansion or surprising earnings growth when people are looking for something not so great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's hard because if you look at look at the numbers, our expectations on earnings are that we're at best flat, maybe decline 10 uh, percent. Um, you know, if we decline 10 percent, the market's decidedly expensive. It, even today, the market's decidedly expensive. What would necessitate uh, multiples expanding is not a Fed pause. That's not going to drive this. It's going to be a Fed pivot. Let's remember, the last time we saw multiple expansion was in a highly different time when the Fed was really, yeah, money really was ac- flowing and rates were accommodative. Dropping, right? In fact, without that, the highest we got, I think, was like 19 and a half times. So you have these two drivers kind of pulling you in. Now, could we middle through? Yes. Do we have to have a recession to see stocks give lackluster performance? The answer is really no, because you can, you can see earnings may be coming in without an economic recession simply because of what's happening in margins right now. Inflation, as much as we hated it, right, it allowed companies to raise price. It allowed revenues to go up. Right. It's good for earnings. It, it, it's good for earnings. So now we're in kind of a, an opposite environment of that. And so you really got to pay attention to price. You got to pay attention to quality. And obviously, the noise that's going to happen this year is going to be really loud. So, you know, you, sometimes you have to ignore it. So, Brenda, what are we to make of this move over the last week? And not only the NASDAQ, I'm looking at my fact set here three and three quarters percent for the NASDAQ over the past week, and the Russell with small caps up three and a half percent, outperforming both the Dow and the SP. 
I think we've already seen some of this inflation, better than expected inflation move, really with the non-farm payroll report and the news we got about wage growth and then the backward revisions to wage growth. So I think that's the that's the, the more important story uh, in, in our view, because that's the area where we're likely to still have um, some inflation that, that sticks around because the job market has continued to be so strong. So I think we've already seen some of this move higher. Um, if tomorrow's number is as expected or a little bit better, I don't I don't expect that we'll see a huge move in the market. I agree with the other comments that, you know, we're kind of at a point in valuation for the S&P 500 at least, where it's hard to really make a case for a significant upside without multiple expansion. And I just don't think we're going to see that as long as rates are where they are and as long as earnings are where they are. If we suddenly earn, uh, suddenly learn that, you know, earnings should be much higher next year, which I, I don't think we will, but if we do, that would certainly change uh, change our view. Mm -hmm. But I think if we look and look forward over the next six months or so, if by mid-year this year, we're able to look forward into 2024, and if that ends up being more of a recovery year, then maybe there's a case uh, for more significant upside um, than we see right now. But today, we're really looking at kind of, you know, maybe five, maybe 10% upside, and that's probably about it uh, for large cap stocks mm -hmm. in the U.S. So, Joe, right, you got earnings capped, Theoretically, yep. you got the multiple capped. Mm -hmm. You don't have rates capped because you're not exactly sure what the Fed is oh. going to do. I mean, you listen to them, but who knows if they're going to get to where they say they're going to go. Gunlock says they're not right. He did his webcast yesterday, said they're not going to get to 5%. He said they're not even in control. So the, his bond market is in control. Listen to what he said in the webcast. We'll kick it around on the other side. The Fed was way behind the curve and you knew that you were headed into a horror show. So it turned into a dumpster fire. And now, relative to fixed income in particular, it's absolutely exciting in the fixed income market. Okay, so we'll get to that side of what he said in a moment. But this idea that they're not getting to 5%, no matter what they say, and the bond market is telling them, good luck. Well, you know that I agree with Jeffrey, and I believe that the bond market has already won. Um, I think it's being messaged in the price performance of select commodities. You're seeing it in the housing market, which is in recession. You saw it in the ISM services last week. And that's why tomorrow, this inflation reading, now the Federal Reserve doesn't want the inflation reading to be bad. We all understand that. But for the Federal Reserve's position right now, which seems to be overtly hawkish, this figure needs to be bad because I don't want to say they're losing credibility. But the market has completely lost confidence that they have this under control. And I'll tell you why. That's the whole that's been a They're, big debate this week. It's been right. So they have a communication tool, right? They utilize their voices as a tool for policy. This week, they've used that extensively. Every time they've used it, you've had a knee jerk reaction in the market lower. And then the market resiliency recovers from that and moves higher. So that communication tool is significantly weakened right now. It's not working. Well, There's part no of the, confidence that they've got this right. Part of, the, part of the problem, as Leisman has discussed with us on, on this very set this very week, is to whether they become tone deaf to the data. That, that, you know, if you get a good read on the CPI tomorrow morning, well, what do they say? Are they still talking as if you're not trending in the, in, in the right direction? That's a le legitimate and considerable argument for investors to weigh as they decide where the market may be going. Does the Fed get it? 
I would say they do get it. They're trying to jawbone it, but each time they jawbone, the tool is becoming less effective. Financial conditions, and you can almost track this, Scott, and our Ben Emmons put out something on this. Financial conditions, when they get better, the Fed jawbones the market. Had a big impact earlier in the year. It has less and less of an impact every time. What I will tell you is I disagree, I hate to say this, with Jeff Gunlick. I think that the Fed is going to stay steadfast. Let's remember that three and six months, which he pointed out, have been uncharacteristically volatile this year. It's simply because of what's happening in the environment. And the Fed is just not afraid of today. They're afraid of tomorrow. And that is why I think they stay engaged for longer than maybe uh, the game of chicken, I think, is going to be won by the Fed, not the bond market. Mm. What do you think mm. about that? So listening to all of this, I have a new thought. And when you say the jawboning, right, their messaging is becoming less effective. I'm wondering if we aren't weaning ourselves off of our dependence on the Fed to drive the market both up and down. Now, that makes sense if we think that we're past the worst of the rate hikes, if we probably have three hikes of 25 basis points coming, if we know what the steady state of balance sheet roll-off is going to be. I actually just finished writing our quarterly client letter, and I put a PS at the end. This thing's seven pages. It's painful. It's like an alternative to Ambien. It's awful. But five of those paragraphs talked about the Fed extensively. And my PS at the end was, I can't wait until this letter doesn't need to discuss the Fed for five paragraphs again. I think that's what we're getting back to. Mm, I don't know about that. I think so. Because in a year from now, there's not going to be as much excitement left at the Fed level. Oh, well, okay. Well, you're talking a year from now, fine. But that's a long runway until your letter changes. But but maybe six months (laughs) from now. Because the next six months, with respect to the Fed, are going to hold a lot less fireworks than the previous six months. Well, what if Gunlock's right? And, they, and they're not going to get to 5%. So be it. Well, what does that mean for stocks? Okay, so let's say they don't. I mean, they're already not. The, the 10 years at 3.5%, that's pretty crazy. So what that means for stocks is that you adjust your risk-free rate when you're doing your valuation work. And maybe if this year you're saying, hey, I think the risk-free rate I should use is 4.5%, 5%, maybe next year you use 35 4%, and that actually makes stocks slightly more attractive. I think you still have a valuation, excuse me, I think you still have a valuation ceiling. I don't know that we get past 18 times, but it makes 18 times more achievable than it is today. Listen, when you go from $400 billion of quantitative tightening, Mm -hmm. turn the calendar into the (laughs) next year and suggest that you're going to do 1.1 trillion, you're at 5%. You're beyond 5%. So Jeff is right. They're there. And they're not going to be able to do as much as they want. And the market right now is in formation. The playbook is in place for that exact outcome. The market is looking and it is pricing in a lower dollar. You're seeing that universally in the equity markets, in the fixed income markets, in all the geographic asset classes. The story is the lower dollar. And the lower dollar Mm -hmm. is the outcome of Jeff's scenario being correct. So he's and it's been, playing out now. Well, he's been calling for that for some time. The other, And we'll get to that also in a moment. The other thing he said, which is maybe the most provocative thing of all for all of you as, as investors, is this idea of forget the, the 60-40 portfolio, right, equities to bonds. He is talking about a 40-60 <laughs> as being his favorite. You heard him say, and now relative to fixed income in particular, it's absolutely exciting in the fixed income market. What do you make what do you make of that? I agree. There's now an alternative to, to stocks. To, to that there, to that degree? <clears throat> that we I, need I, to I rethink I, entirely 
how we've been investing for the last however many decades? No, but I think it creates opportunities within those various markets to think differently. So maybe you go uh, overweight, a, a, a certain asset class being bonds relative to where you've been in the last little bit. Maybe you even extend duration. We haven't done that yet, but maybe you do. But I think what it does is within stocks. So you think about the other thing that he said yesterday, uh, Scott, he talked about international. The dollar's been in this recent downtrend where it finally broke its uh, 50-week moving average. If the dollar goes into a bear market, he's going to absolutely be right. So what did we do? The risk of staying underweight international was too high. We moved to neutral, okay, as an investment committee. We're going to wait for validation of that to go overweight like he is. He's making the bet a little earlier than we're willing to, but you can't ignore Well, he's been waiting for this moment, and he's talked about it with me. But for 15 years, hold on. You're bringing up a good point. For 15 years, we've been uh, in a place where uh, international markets have traded a discount. In fact, earnings since 06 in the U.S. are up 120%. They're down in EM and down in international. So you need that dollar tailwind to be able to help those markets. So I do think that you have to pay attention to what's happening, but you can't flip everything on its head. But Brenda, I mean, that's becoming the narrative now. Um, more people are talking about international outperforming the U.S. this year for all of the reasons that Rob said and Jeffrey's been preaching for every time we've seemingly spoken with him over the last year, waiting for the dollar to weaken, then I'm buying EM, waiting, 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 and now may be the moment. Right. And I think if we one thing that's really underappreciated is that parts of the international market, specifically EFA, which is Europe and Japan, um, outperformed the S&P 500 last year, it had such a strong fourth quarter and valuations, as we as everyone's discussed, are been so depressed uh, that there was clearly a ton of bad news baked in. And now we have an environment where the winter hasn't been as bad as expected in Europe. We have China that is reopening. We have China that's one of the, the only major economy in the world that's stimulating its economy. And I think that's an important differentiator. And meanwhile, assets there were also very undervalued. So I think we could absolutely see, even if there isn't a gigantic tailwind from the dollar, I think we could see uh, international markets outperforming parts of the U.S. market and specifically the S&P 500. Um, I just think, you know, when we look at potential upside there, it's just it's hard to make a case. Um, and it's much easier to make that case mm-hmm. on the international side, even though it's inherently a little bit riskier. Sure. Right. Uh, but uh, but things were so down and out um, that I think the tide could be turning a little bit here. Jenny, three times better is what EM is to start this year than the S&P. It's pretty wild. So J.P. Morgan puts out this really great guide to the markets. It's publicly available. You can go download it. Go if you want to if you want to cement this argument, go and look at pages 48 and 49. What you see on page 48 is that the relative P.E. of international stocks relative to U.S. is two standard deviations below historical norms. That's like crazy. And then you look at page 40. Uh, shoot, I said the wrong one. I think it's 47 and 48. Then you I look don't at page think, 47. Yeah, people don't have the, the book in front should. of them. Don't worry. Everyone who's watching should look at this because it like slaps you in the face how compelling okay, this argument is. Okay, you tweet is. that out after the show so okay. they have it in front of them. I will. Okay. Um, but also you look at page 47 and what you see is that 
historically, U.S. outperforms international on this kind of like seven or eight year basis. We're at 15 and a half years of U.S. outperforming international. These things are really dislocated. There is a huge opportunity here. So I love that this conversation. It's is all about up. the dollar, though. Let's it I'm is. confused. They were cheap for the last five years. You would have gotten your face ripped off every year in the last five years if you just pointed to valuation. You can't just Not point to value. Listen, the end of last year, it started to play out that way. You're, you would have not performed well many, okay. many years. Jenny, it's 15 years. It's 15 you need years. confirmation of that trend. But you Rob, need it. Everything you look at, you can look at all these things that are going positively now, which is China starting to reopen. Europe avoiding this massive crisis because of um, because of energy costs, right? This warm winter is a really big deal. There's a lot of really positive things happening. We know the pendulum always swings too far, and I would argue very strongly the pendulum has swung too far now. It went on probably three years longer than it should have, and there's an opportunity here. Let's, let's hit Apple, if we could, um, before we take our first break, because I'm surprised at some of the price action in the market today. Regarding Apple, it's up 1.5%, and 132.71, just looking at it here, because Barclays today is out with a provocative note. They reduce estimates and their price target, and they're talking about weakening demand. That hasn't been the story of late. It's been weakening supply, right? That's what Tim Cook has said on the most recent earnings calls. Right. We could have sold more. We just couldn't get the components. We couldn't get this. We couldn't get that. So that's been the big issue. Now, they say their channel checks and speaking of China and international, which obviously Apple gets a nice part of their revenue from China. Um, they've checked over the last few days. What started out as a production driven cuts has moved to demand weakness across product categories. How concerning is this, Joe? The market doesn't seem to be paying much attention to it today. Well, I think there was significant selling pressure in Apple and a lot of the mega caps in the end of uh, 2022. So I, I think we've kind of now seen an environment where institutional investors and mutual fund managers are actually carrying Apple at an underweight. And if you look back historically, that generally uh, pro projects looking forward at least the period of sideways price action. But a lot of the negativity has overall been built in. So but, I think, but, but not from a, not from a demand standpoint, though. Well, but, if there's a real drop off in demand, the stock is not going to sit at 132. Well, we have to wait until earnings to see that, and then what's the response from Apple on the other side? Remember, Apple has that blunt instrument of a significant buyback, just like Microsoft and Alphabet does. <clears throat> They'll utilize that in February if there's a significant, a significant rather drop off in their supply to demand and balance, and it's reflected in earnings. So I'd be careful with that one. We're, we're de-emphasizing the mega caps. We own Apple in our quality growth portfolio, but we're underweight to the index. I mean, let's not forget that this still trades at a 30% premium to the market, right? Five years, the five-year average is 3%, and in 2016, it traded at a 40% discount. So the stock's expensive. So, yes, you can get bounces. Listen, it's a huge constituent in all the indices. So you get a bounce in markets, you're likely to get a bounce in, in, in Apple as well. You just have to, I think, be a little careful. Sure, but at least, with of, the late, the, at least of late, excuse me, is that the, the market has bounced more than Apple has bounced, right? And that's led to the conversation of how much do you really need Apple and some of the mega caps to get you a rally. The market sort of proved over the last six months minimum that you could have a market move higher without necessarily having Apple lead the way. Now you have, as I said, the Nasdaq's up 4% in a week. 
and it looks to me to be at about the highs of the day today. It, it was as really is, broken, though, Scotty, at the, the end of last year. Tech yeah. was really broken at the end of last year. It's well below its 200-day moving average still. The rest of the market isn't. So I, I would suspect some catch-up there. That's not a surprise. All right, coming up, we got a big downgrade today for one Dow stock, saying it could fall nearly 20% from here. Brenda owns it. We debate it. We trade it. Next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. All right, we're back. We have a call of the day winner today. Undoubtedly, it's Salesforce. Again, not selling off significantly, but nonetheless, Brenda, your stock downgraded to underperform at Bernstein. They talk about growth purgatory. Those are the words that they used. The target goes to 119 from 134. That's about 20 percent lower. What do we make of this call? We think if we look at what the company is doing today, they're focusing more now on trying to improve profitability, which I think is an important part of the story here, and still have a ton of recurring revenue. And that's really valuable in our view. But obviously, there's been management changes that you know, no one's happy about, two pretty significant ones in a row. Uh, the company's business is slowing, and we put these, this company in the camp with a lot of other mega cap tech companies in terms of it just being more mature. And also, you know, coming off of a couple of years that were incredibly strong, and now we're on the other side of that. So we continue to think that Salesforce and its product are going to be incredibly relevant in the marketplace. Companies, we think, will continue to prioritize spending on Salesforce and, and taking care of their customers. And we think the company has a lot of opportunity to cross-sell products within their existing base of customers. But I think the bigger question is, how much do we pay for that mm-hmm. in terms of what the mm-hmm. pull is? Um, it certainly has come down, um, but we think it does ultimately deserve to trade at a premium uh, because of all the things I just mentioned. Uh, so we're continuing to stick with it here, but obviously it's um, it's it's become more, much more controversial story. Joe, uh, you made a great trade in this. Mm-hmm. You owned it and you sold it in April of 2021. So I guess you probably sacrificed some, some upside and protected yourself 
to a lot of downside yeah, and the by strat- getting out when you did. The strategy sold out of Salesforce because it began to recognize the deterioration in the sales growth. If you go back and you study the last three years, you'll see this company averaging nearly 25% sales growth. Last, car- last quarter, they struggled to eke out 13%. So that revenue growth is so critical in terms of what Brenda's suggesting. What's the right valuation? What's the right premium? Which for a twenty? This it's a twenty-six times. Part of the issue with the note, or the issue they raise, is that they sort of masked the drop in what you're talking about in revenue growth through acquisitions, right? Which made the picture seem prettier than in reality it are was. They, are, they, are they in a position right now where they can continue with that aggressive acquisition strategy? I would say the answer to that is no. So now it falls back onto margins, and you see right away, what are they doing? Reducing the workforce, right? What do you think here? Would you interested in this? Salesforce? No. Why? Um, listen, I know they've come down from trading ridiculous multiples of sales to trading at five times, five, six times sales, I think. Uh, if you were to talk to some of my friends in the industry that are familiar with the name, there's insider selling in this stock. Um, yeah, about five times sales. So... It's it's not something that we would we would buy. We're not interested in the space. Okay, uh, I want to hit another downgrade because it goes to you, uh, Jenny. It's Carmax, another sell call today. Uh, downgraded, underweight. J.P. Morgan is the is the firm that does it. Price target goes to sixty. That's about eleven percent downside from here. Unfavorable risk reward. Hope for a recovery. They suggest looks premature. What do you think? I think it's a laughable timing. I mean, where were they when the stock was at $130? So, so they've already missed 50% downside, and now they're downgrading it with 11% downside from here. But also, this is a really interesting time. I would actually have upgraded it from here because what you've got ahead is you've got normalizing supply chains. One of the biggest challenges for CarMax over the past couple of years, even though they made a lot of money because of it, was the lack of supply. So now you're going to have tons of supply. If the economy stays kind of weak or tricky, people are going to be more likely to buy used cars versus new cars. You're going to see them return. So they had this like huge boost up in earnings, and that's what what drove this share price up. But what you see going forward from here after 2023 is that they actually return to this like really consistent previous normalized earnings growth of probably mid to high teens. Also, what's positive is the Carvanas of the world that were coasting along on free money. They're pretty much dead and gone. So you've got returning normal earnings growth, returning volumes. You've got a cheap stock, um, less competition. I don't know why you wouldn't upgrade it. Okay. Coming up real quick. And I can I give go. you we're, that we're, said give me private equity on Salesforce? I want to go back just one second. Private equity is now interested in that industry. You've seen it kind of come in mass. There's haves and have nots. And some of my PMs are telling me, listen, some of these at those prices, you got to pay attention to. In fact, one of them saying, he, he does, in fact, like Salesforce and is paying attention to it. So I want to be respectful of my team. Okay, got you. Up next, our 2023 Halftime Stock Summit rolls on. Brenda revealing her top stock and sector picks for the year ahead. Plus, we're getting ready to grade your trade, too. You can email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. You can tweet us, too. Use the hashtag GradeMyTrade. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Christina Partzinevelis, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Russian President Vladimir Putin appointing a new commander to lead his forces in Ukraine. General Valery Gerasimov will take over for Sergei uh, Sirovikin, according to Russian's defense ministry. The move comes just three months after Sirovikin became the first person to be handed sole charge of the campaign since Russia launched its invasion in February. The Pentagon formally dropping its COVID vaccination mandate for U.S. military personnel. The Defense Department already stopped discharging troops who refused to get the shot. However, a new memo signed by Defense Secretary Austin Tuesday gives commanders some discretion in how to deploy troops who are unvaccinated. And Bill's Damar Hamlin was discharged from a Buffalo hospital this morning after he was transferred there earlier this week. Hamlin completed a thorough medical evaluation and a series of comprehensive tests and can now continue his rehabilitation from home. This comes just over a week after Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest on the field during the Bills game against the Cincinnati Bengals. We wish him a speedy recovery. Scott? Thank you. That's great news. Christina Partsinevelos, our annual stock summit continues now with Brenda. All right, Brenda, let's go through these picks here. Number one is Boeing. This stock's had a huge move, right? It's up 50% plus in six months. Why is it going to continue that this year? I know it's been controversial given the huge move this had recently, but when we look out to 2023, we think we're in the earlier stages of an aerospace cycle, and Boeing should absolutely benefit from that, especially now that they have righted so many wrongs uh, within their own company. Uh, but with free cash flow growth of 50, more than 50% projected for 2023, we think that's really compelling. And we just can't ignore the longer-term story here, and that is that this is a company that used to have almost $14 billion of free cash flow. Um, so we think we, that the company can absolutely get close to that once again over the very long term. And for that reason, we're continuing to stick with it here. Okay. CVS is number two. Why? This is a company that's really well positioned within value-based care, which we think is going to be an incredibly relevant topic within healthcare for many years to come. Uh, really has, you know, a fully integrated model with lots of individual growth opportunities uh, embedded within that model, could potentially make some acquisitions to further build it out. But really, inexpensive, trading at 10 times earnings. I really think this is um, a solid company within the space. Also should be relatively defensive no matter what the economy is doing, especially given the value focus. Okay. And Disney, that's an interesting pick. Disney, obviously very unloved for the last few years. But when we look at this company and look at the assets that it has, they are absolutely unmatched. Bob Iger is back. He's already making some tweaks uh, announced recently within the parks to appease customers. But just think that the lifelong relationship this company has with its customers is unmatched anywhere else. Um, And really think that over the next couple of years, we're going to see that streaming business getting closer to profitability, which should be a catalyst. And continue to think it's well positioned. And I know it's been a disappointment, but when we look at what could work in 2023, we think uh, Disney could uh, in this environment. Yeah, it's about 50, well, about 40% from its uh, 52 week high. You own it too. Before you give your uh, sector, let's, let's just get a comment on, on some of these because you've got cross ownership here well, on Disney. Brenda said something interesting, which is boy, it's really unloved. And you know, our long-standing thesis has been eventually they're going to get back to $10 of earnings. That has been kicked down the road and kicked down the road, but we kind of still stand there. But what I think is interesting is this concept of a popularity premium or discount. And there's a few companies out there, Apple's one of them, where over, the, over history, you see they get popularity premiums. Disney had one for a long time. It went away. Everybody's hated it. But of all the companies that could get that back, they could. And at that point, they should get a premium valuation laid on it. So you have improving trends plus you have 
a good reason for it to have a valuation premium. Joe, what do you think of these picks in general, Boeing, CVS, and Disney? Well, I look at it right away, and I could see that Brenda is, is somewhat concerned, or I would use the word defensive for 2023. I've heard Brenda talk a lot about Disney growth defensive? names. I think Disney from a valuation perspective. I think so. I, I think that is to be considered, you know, somewhat conservative. It's not like she's going out and suggesting maybe something like a Netflix or, or, or some of the other growth names. So that, that just stands out to me overall. Robbie? Like the Boeing, we, we toyed with the idea of using Boeing as one of our picks, too. We instead took the chicken way to do that. <laughs> we used ITA, which is Lockheed Raytheon Boeing. And listen, air travel is back. Commercial aerospace is back. Even if you have an interim slowdown, people are going to want to get in front of that. Airlines are going to want to get in front of that and start reordering planes. I think uh, Boeing's an interesting uh, trade for this game. Okay. Brand and uh, healthcare, a space that an uh, awful lot of people seem to like, and you do as well. This is a space that has something for everyone um, and also can be really defensive um, in a choppy, uncertain economic environment. Uh, but when you look within the space, we just see lots of opportunities there. And then on top of that, and this is really more of the longer term, but there has been an incredible amount of research dollars now devoted to understanding things like viruses and everything coming out of COVID. And we think that really could result in a lot of innovation in this sector. And there is a lot to begin with, but even more so over the coming decades. So we really like the space. All right. We, uh, of course, have more picks coming uh, this week, including tomorrow. Grade My Trade is up next. There's still time to send an email to askhalftime at cnbc.com. You can tweet us as well. We'll be right back after this. All right. Welcome back. Let's do Grade My Trade. All right, Joe, you're up first, okay? Let's do it. Uh, from Gary in Pennsylvania, Gary M. I bought B of A, that's Bank of America, at $38 in November after hearing Mike Mayo's price target of 52. It immediately went down to 32. Okay. So what do we do? So What's Gary, here? Gary, what we want to do with this trade is we want to maintain the position. I like the technical formation. If you study 2022, what do I mean by that? You see a series of higher lows between July, October, and more recently December, which maintained above $30. So Below 29.50, that's where the technical formation breaks down. Fundamentally, you've got earnings coming. You're going to see strength in net interest income. And beyond that, the trading environment, again, is very conducive for the investment banks. Focus on fixed income. Probably going to see about 20% growth there. Stay with this position. Okay. Jenny, you're up. From Eric in Pennsylvania, I entered B&G Foods at $12.50 and Madov Holdings at $19.75 for a long-term hold. What are your thoughts? They do have nice yields. What do you think? This guy gets like an A plus plus plus, and you know I don't give those out easily. But this yeah, really. Yeah, last time you gave somebody a D. I he think. deserved it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, both of these stocks are down tremendously from their highs. BNG's down 60% from a year ago. Um, Madden's down 24%. So so you nailed the bottom. And I think they're great long-term holdings. I think unique to each company, but the tail sorry the headwinds of last year become tailwinds this year. So just hang on to them, collect the dividends, and let the share prices increase. All right, Brand, you're up. I got from Ian here, okay? Uh, controversial stock. I bought Meta on October 28th of, of last year at a fill price of $99.16 a share. I hold the position in a taxable account. How long is it a hold, do you think? 
Well, I think he gets an A for almost timing the, the buy perfectly this year. Uh, but I think when we look at this company, still has an incredible amount of daily active users, 3.7 billion. That's definitely worth something, um, despite the controversy. Uh, but that being said, given that he's seen such a huge appreciation, we would consider trimming some here, even in a taxable account, knowing that, you know, I think the stock could probably get to 150. Uh, but along the way, I think this is just a market where you have to be disciplined and uh, take some profits when you have the opportunity. So I would recommend trimming here. Okay. And last but not least, uh, Rob Seachin, you got from Jim. I bought Interpublic in September of 2020, a long time ago, mm-hmm. at $16.76, sold half in June of 2021, still hold the other half. What do you think of the trade? Should they continue to hold or sell or what? We, we own it. I think it's an A-plus trade. Uh, he owned it. The, the, the company was a home run in the communications sector. Um, they continue to execute uh, on all fronts. It's not the most exciting growth story, but what a great fundamental business. So we, Bowen we said he wins it. the race. Yeah. I mean, Can I say one You thing? still hold it? Yeah, we do. He, sh- he should too? He should on the other half. I mean, he he took some off already. Yeah, but one sentence. I'm going to bet this guy got this idea from me because I bought it at 16 and a half September of 2020. So good job. Just for my part, though, I did of sell course. it around this level about a year ago. Okay. Oh, you can go back and look at that. <laughs> or let us know, Jim, if you're out there. I don't know, you don't pay up on your bets, though. I do. Josh won't let me. I have offered burgers like 20 times. You okay. offered burgers to Josh and he didn't take you yeah, up on it? I even said I'd drive it's out to It's dry January. He's, He's probably not having right. burgers. Keep your trades coming in. Send us an email at askhalftime at cnbc.com. And seriously, Jim, let us know if, if this idea was from Jenny Harrington. We want to know. Up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. Halftime's right back. Piece of business before we get to Mike Santoli. You're right, Jenny. You're right. It was a Jenny recommendation, says Jim yes. Hardy. Jenny rocks <laughs> what you. Jim says. That makes me so, so happy. Just, just so we cleared that Relative out. of yours? Mike Santoli. <laughs> All right, we had to just take care of that piece of business real quick uh, with, with Jenny and grade my trade. Yes, very important. Uh, I tell you what, you know, this move in the NASDAQ is, is interesting to me. It's up near 4% over the past week. And even a negative note from a Barclays today couldn't derail Apple today thus far. Yeah, it is true. And Scott, I think the market in general is behaving as if in aggregate people came into the year uh, not exposed to enough risk. Uh, now, if, if things were going to hold together for a little while, that's what it suggests from not really just the Nasdaq, which is in a bit of a catch up mode. I still see that as a, as a little more of an echo effect of how much it's been down. Uh, but overall, high beta stocks outperforming defensive groups at this point of the year. Uh, You're seeing cyclicals do pretty well. We've got this reprieve on gasoline prices. Incomes are still okay. And the recession calls are pretty vociferous out there based on the yield curve and the leading indicators. But the lead times can be significant. And you have this period where you might actually get a little bit of a thaw. And I think that's what people are saying. Also, perhaps that the burden of proof on the inflation story is slowly shifting to people who are saying it's going to remain elevated for longer versus those who are Basically saying, uh, look, it's going to come down pretty hard. All right. I will see you down at the stock exchange in a few hours yep. during overtime for your last word. Mike Santoli, one of the world's biggest chip companies, is set to report earnings tomorrow. Semi stocks coming back to start the year, too. Is it too early to buy them, though? We debate that next. We are back. Earnings season kicking off Friday with one big semi maker reporting results coming up. I think that's tomorrow, right? 
Tomorrow morning. Christina Partsinevelos is here with that, and it's Taiwan Semi. Yes, it is. Look at that. Even the largest chip contractor in the world isn't immune to demand weakness and foreign exchange fluctuations. TSMC actually posted its first sales miss in two years for the month of December, just ahead, as Scott alluded to, Q4 earnings, which are out really, really early tomorrow morning. So some potential concerns that I just outlined uh, that I want to go over. So you've got weaker demand that could possibly lead to reduced customer orders from some of their big customers like AMD or Apple. And that could potentially lead to higher inventory levels. And because of that weaker demand, some of the uh, node lines may not be used at full capacity, so full utilization. The number we're going to be looking for is uh, just around above 80 percent. And then the other point is the cost of overseas fabs and if that cost will continue to grow. Keep in mind, TSMC announced it would spend $40 billion. That's a huge investment, the largest for Arizona, building a second fab there. But there are, of course, some bright spots. TSMC launched uh, the three nanometer node. They had launched it in December, and this will make chips even faster and more efficient so they could get more customers. The company is expected to increase prices on various wafers, which would obviously help margins. And lastly, the company reduced its capex to $36 billion uh, for 2022 versus its earlier goal of $40 billion just not too long ago. And that could help drive free cash flow. Another big important factor is Q1 guidance will really set the tone for demand given how many customers they have within the, the semi-space. Not a lot of love in the space, right? Bar, I'm looking at a note today from Wolf. They, they say it's too early to buy semi-stocks, right? Valuations are not yet near trough levels. It, it depends on who you speak to right now. It's like, is the bottoming process in? Are we still there? Do we have more room to fall? Uh, timing is always a problem. Let's see what they think. First what, in, what do you think. First in, first out. I've said that on the semi-industry. I think there are names that you can own. Uh, can you own this one? I think you can because the fundamental expectations have been marked down so low. I mean, it couldn't get any lower. Um, understand, though, if you own EEM, if you own IEMG, this, this is clearly an emerging market play. It's the largest holding in each one of those ETFs. So this is one of the names that I do think, as a bellwether, um, you could benefit from that geographic exposure overwhelming some of the fundamental challenges, which ultimately they're going to get through. You don't own Taiwan Semi, Rob, but you own Applied Materials, LAM, and KLA. Yeah, the, the, the equipment services uh, companies. It's a story of a low bar and, and low expectations. A lot of the bad news, demand slowdown, CapEx cuts, China export restrictions, we think are priced into the names. It, it, it could be early, but you know we're willing to hold. I think the key is our businesses are all capital light. We've avoided the names that require heavy capital investment. That's how we've played it. Yep. They've gotten off to a good start this year, right? The SMH is up 7.5%, NVIDIA 7.5%, AMD 45 and the one you you're talking about now, Taiwan Semi up 8.5%. You didn't mention Intel, though, because they just launched their Sapphire Rapids just on Tuesday, and they've uh, that company has struggled, yet that's supposed to revitalize the business stock. for CPU. Oh, well, that's why you're smiling, she right? She doesn't like when like, I mention it. Oh, so I, sorry, go ahead, then, if, I, if I, I'm not oh, allowed no, to mention please. Intel. I'd much rather someone talk about it for me. <laughs> I'm just talking about the launch, but I don't know if that's really going to revitalize the business just yet. All right. Well, uh, thank you. That's Christina Parksonevelos. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We'll come back with Final Trades next. All right, 4 o'clock Eastern overtime today. PIMCO's Erin Brown with her playbook for 2023. Josh Brown, talk to him about what, uh, what's going on in the market, what he thinks about CPI, what the market may do. And the man called the most accurate strategist on the street for 2022, Barry Bannister. He is with us to give his 2023 update. 
So we uh, look forward to seeing you all then. Let's do final trades. Brenda, go first. Go with the Zoetis. So in a really well positioned within the animal health space, it has not performed well. They've had problems with the supply chain, but we think that should be resolved over the coming year. Okay, Jenny? Something that I noticed in December was my loser stocks just got crushed with tax loss harvesting. And what I'm seeing now is that's really reversing. So SL Green is in that camp, still has a 9% dividend yield. All right, Joseph, speaking Abbott. of real estate. Abbott, Abbott Labs. Right, you like real estate. I do like real estate. <laughs> I've got a position in the XLRE. It's working very well Sorry, right now. Abbott ahead. Labs, healthcare. Um, I'm looking for companies right now that have revenue exposure greater than 60% internationally. Abbott Labs is an example of that. Siege. J.P. Morgan in front of earnings on Friday. All right. Thank you, everybody. I'll see you in overtime. It does it for us. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.